Ahoy, and welcome in to Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Nagler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health, treatment, and any other things you want to know about it. And I also draw examples from my practice, both as a school social worker and a therapist in private practice. Today, I am not podcasting with Mariska, my partner in podcasting, because she is by walking around the house looking for food. She's been extra hungry lately. As you know, we've been trying to battle through her cough, and the vet decided that she could use some steroids, which have uh, been, you know, for the next few days, making her ravenous. So I think she's circling around the kitchen trying to see if there were any scraps that were left um, unguarded. I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but for me, it's the day after Christmas. And I did not get a podcast out last week, and I apologize for that. But I don't know about you, but for me, when I get out of my routine, I tend to be far less productive. So when I'm sitting at my computer and looking at my Google Calendar and whatnot every day, then I can kind of put things into an order. And to pull back the curtain, typically I record this podcast between sessions with clients. So I'll have just spoken with one client and then I may have an hour or two break and I'll say, oh, I've got 15, 20 minutes where I could record some thoughts about mental health. And when I'm taking some time off, that tends not to be the case. So today I want to talk a little bit about a client that's been sticking in my head because of my inability to help her. People will ask me, don't you get depressed when you're hearing about all these challenging stories that people are dealing with? And perhaps perversely, it has the opposite effect where, not that I'm happy that people are suffering, but that when I hear the suffering of others and I am inspired by them and the way they're managing, pushing through it, by comparison, my life feels incredibly easy. And it makes me feel so grateful for all of the the blessings and privileges that I have. And so, no, I am not overwhelmed by the stories of the people that they share with me. Um, Except where it sticks with me is when I get a client who is dealing often with depression and they want me to help in some way. They're coming to me hoping that I can help them reframe and feel a ray of light through the fog and the cloud of depression that's surrounding them. And sometimes there are no words that I can use that pierce that. And there is value in just being with a person in their pain. But when that's not what the client was coming for, it feels bad. And so I had a client who has struggled with depression for years. And she's had some really good times where depression was barely on her. But what's confounding her now is that the depression is there And objectively, her life has never been going better. She has just celebrated her one-year anniversary with her boyfriend. They're talking about moving in together. Um, She's, you know, living in her own apartment, not having to live with her parents anymore. You know, like, this is, these are good things. Her, the job that she has, she's really valued by her boss. And they made a lot of special arrangements for her. She, She talked about leaving and then decided to come, they begged her to come back. And yet she's dissatisfied because it's just an office job and she has no passion for it. And she feels like it's eroding her her will to exist, really. Um, And I think a lot of people feel that way, where they're stuck in this place where they feel that the work that they do doesn't necessarily have a great deal of meaning. And they're wondering, am I behind? Am Am I doing anything that matters? 
And again, these are all issues of perspective. So we can start to give in to the allure of hopelessness, this feeling that it's never going to get any better. And that's what depression does for us. Now, I believe that depression is not just a parasitic disease. It is our brain's, you know, again, attempt, all of things that we experience, anxiety, depression, whatnot, they're our brain's attempt to reframe things for us so that we can somehow survive difficulties better. So what could be the positive benefit of feeling hopeless? The siren song of depression is telling us, just give up. Nothing's ever going to feel better. Nothing's ever going to be right. Why even try? And so we can say, like, what is the secondary gain from that? So whenever I'm encountering a person who gives me the yes buts, meaning I'll try to offer a solution and they'll say, you know, so I might say they want to lose weight. I'll say, well, you could try eating differently. Yes, but that won't work because like I just, all that food tastes terrible. And I said, well, we could try working out more. Oh, but my joints are always hurting. And so if I get three, yes, will that work for other people, but not for me, then perhaps I'm trying to solve the wrong problem. Years ago, and I may have talked about her on the podcast before, I had a, a student and she came to me and she said, Mr. Mangler, I don't know what to do. Everyone says that I'm lying, but I'm not lying. She had gone to her doctor and they said that she had to lose weight. She was pre-diabetic and it was really starting to affect her health. And so they put her on a meal plan and an exercise plan. And she said, I am following the plan, but I'm not losing any weight. And in fact, she had actually gained a pound and whatnot, but it was mathematically impossible. She was burning more calories than she was taking in. She should have been losing weight. So we had to look at, could there be a secondary gain to her from not losing weight. And in her case, as a child, she had been molested by a traveling sort of creature that was staying at the home of her grandmother. And in her mind, this was because she was such a cute little girl. Everyone was always talking about how cute she was. And there was a part of her that saw that weight as a shield. Now, we didn't get this out in one session. This took a while to work through all these ideas. But there was a part of her that felt like if I stay heavy, then I will not be a target. And there was this secondary gain. And there are secondary, every time that we are sabotaging and getting in our own way, sometimes there's a secondary gain. And these secondary gains are so powerful that they can convey. Our brain can make us retain weight when statistically we should not be able to. I mean, it should seem like magic. Like, was her body just retaining fluid? I don't know the mechanism by which it was happening. I do know that once she became more aware of it, you know, she didn't suddenly become thin, but but math started working again and the calories that she was taking in and the calories she was burning started to line up. So what could be the secondary gain of hopelessness, of feeling like there is no point to anything? Well, it protects us from hope. Someone once described getting better from depression like climbing an aluminum ladder out of hell. And I think that's so perfect because, again, we think about, you know, being in hell would be terrible. There's fire, there's whatever. But, like, if we're having to climb rung by rung up this aluminum ladder and our hands are getting burned, we're afraid that we're going to fall back to that rocky, burning landscape and it'll hurt even more. But if I can just lay there and not try, it will be terrible. But at least I won't be responsible for the pain anymore. And so that's what the depression is trying to do for us. It's trying to convince us that just get into bed. Just pull the covers over your head. You don't need to try. And the depression's not wrong. 
if we never try, we're unlikely to get hurt. I just, earlier today, I have a giant poster of Theodore Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena speech up in the hallway of my uh, outside of our bedrooms. Because I, again, I've said I'm horribly trying to brainwash my children, but I, I want them to embrace failure and embrace the pain. But it's no joke. Like, getting rejected really hurts. I have a client who was paralyzed with fear. She's just in her early 50s, and there was a man flirting with her who worked at Best Buy, and she desperately wanted to reach out to him to say, hey, maybe we could get a coffee, maybe we could get a drink. But the fear of being rejected was literally making her sob and shake that she could not send an email to this guy. And we worked through it. I helped her, you know, send him a message. And whether or not he responded well was not what was important. The important thing for her was that she try and that she not be a prisoner of the fear of rejection that she's had since she was a little girl. The other aspect that, that what, how is she benefiting? What's the secondary gain of that fear of rejection? Well, if she keeps this Best Buy guy alive in her mind as a possibility, then she won't have to be totally lonely and hopeless that there's no other guy out there for her. If she actually reaches out to him and he says, no, I'm not interested, I'm actually dating someone, well, now what's she going to do with that energy? She's going to feel like there's nowhere to put him, no one to focus on. Or it may be even scarier. What if he says, yes, let's go out on a date? Then the rejection, now we're climbing up that ladder. Now it becomes really scary. So for my client who has is just feeling hopeless. She's just feeling really depressed, even though objectively many parts of her life are going better. I wanted to push her to just take it one day at a time. She is working with her psychiatrist to see if different medications will help. Because to me, this does feel like a serotonin issue. But it's also an issue of what is our perspective on our why? What are we doing here? Yes, perhaps an office job won't be it. But we can make any job meaningful and worthwhile. If we focus on, there's this concept of job crafting. There's some research on these people who do custodial work at hospitals and their job satisfaction rates. And some of the people who worked in ICUs where there were people who were not conscious, but they would purposely go in and rearrange the pictures on the walls and do things so that the, the family members who came in got to see something different. And they felt like they were part of the treatment of those people who were in the hospital. They felt that there was meaning in their work more than just mopping a floor. I have two brothers that are a year apart in age. Both worked for the airlines for years. And one of them was a baggage loading supervisor. And he went to work every day with a sense of meaning, mission, and purpose. Yes, he wanted to get the planes out on time, but that was sort of a game to him. That was less important than making sure that everybody who worked underneath him felt like they were supported, felt like he would get down and throw the bags on the plane with them as well, and he often would. And he loved their connection, that he had the power to make these guys' day a little bit better. My other brother worked, you know, as a mechanic for an airline where everyone just seemed like they were doing as little work as possible, and everyone was bitter. And it was poisoning him to the point where he quit working for that airline to go work for a different airline, gave up all of his seniority, everything, because the culture around him was so toxic. Now, again, you could say the brother that's fixing planes might have the more meaningful job. He's keeping people safe than the guy who's just making sure the bags are loaded on time. 
but it was the attitudes and the energy that they brought with them to those locations that made the difference in how they were feeling about their work. There are people with this disorder called um, locked-in syndrome. And that seems to me to be so terrible where your body becomes a prison, where your mind is conscious. But all you can do, if you're lucky, is blink to communicate with people. And yet, I was looking on Amazon just before this for their memoir after memoir of people who have found a way to find meaning and purpose in their life and sort of come back from this to form relationships, to stay connected. My client just before logging on recently lost his uncle to Huntington's disease. And the last five years of his uncle's life were terrible. He was not himself. And I talked about this in the issue of grieving for dementia. But still, his cousins, they're all on vacation together right now celebrating Christmas. And getting to hear them talk about when their uncle or their father, his uncle, was well. It was filling him and his younger brother with a greater appreciation and a sense of joy that this was the memory of his uncle that was going to live on and live on in everyone's lives. And I said, this is their opportunity and his uh, aunt's opportunity to show this is what love means in our family. So there is no objective time for hopelessness where hopelessness is the correct answer. Even when we know that we are going to lose the fight against cancer, against Huntington's, against whichever, we can live in such a way where we influence others, where we impact others. If my job is to go into a place where I have no passion, hopefully I can have passion for the coworker who sits in the cubicle next to me, for the person I talk on the phone with. I can craft my job in such a way where I feel like there is meaning and purpose. And if, there, if I can't, if the environment is just too toxic for that, then I need to get out of there. Unless someone is holding a gun to your head, or unless you are you know, locked away in a place where you can't, can we shift things? Can we change things? listening often to many podcasts as I do, I listen to the Ear Hustle podcast, which is about life in prisons and particularly San Quentin and the different things that inmates in different prisons do to make a sense of community, to make their life meaningful. So even if we are locked away in a prison, even if we can't get out of that toxic environment, we can do something. The allure of hopelessness is there to help you if you are suffering, if you are not absorbing enough serotonin, to make you feel like, you know what, I can't escape from this. And sometimes what we need, and this is a cliche, but cliches are cliches for a reason, what we need is time. We need time for the brain to reset. And sometimes pulling the covers over our head for a period of time and just breathing, as long as we just listen to the rules of this podcast and don't die, we will eventually start to feel better. We should try everything in the sun to do the yoga, to try the meds, to talk to somebody, you know, to watch the bad television, whatever it takes to get us to feel a little bit of a reduction of that suffering. But we should not give in to the hopelessness. And that's the goal for all of us. So as I contemplate this coming new year, I'm hoping that 2022 is going to be I was trying to think, what word would I use to describe 2021? I guess I was thinking uh, just flaccid, I guess just, you know, disappointing. It was a year that we all hoped was going to be a lot better. And around summertime, it felt like it was. And then with new variants coming out. But I do feel a sense of hope that as we're finding better treatments for COVID, 
that we're entering into a new stage. And that appreciation for where we're going is there for me. So I will talk a little bit more in the new year when I speak with you next about what is the whole point of life. And I will answer any other questions that I get along the way. So if you have questions for me, you can email me at daniel.magler at live.com. If you follow this podcast on, I just recently found out you can listen to it on Apple Podcasts. or and So if you do, rate and review it and give us a good review and spread the word. And uh, you can send me any questions on this on Quora. And remember, do whatever it takes to get you through this world. You're just not allowed to die. now for something completely different. Sometimes there are no words. Sometimes we need love, care, support, and affection. We don't want to explain anything. For young people with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OCD, autism, therapy is often not enough. Paws for Patrick is an organization dedicated to connecting the love of animals to the people who need it the most. We facilitate that connection by assigning the seekers who contact us a wish granter listens to their story and their needs and helps them acquire an animal or training or documentation so they can have their emotional support animal or ESA in their apartment, dorm, condo, etc. We even have trained therapy dogs and handlers who bring dogs to people who can't have their own. Patrick rarely had the words to express his feelings and his needs, but when he had the love of his dog Cece, he had the strength to persevere. We want to provide every young person who could benefit that kind of love and support. Please check out our website at pauseforpatrick.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a need, reach out. If you want to help become a volunteer, fill out the form on our website. If you can donate, great, but please at least spread the word so we can replace the suffering and silence that many people do with the smiles and security that only the love of an animal can bring.